and welcome to the Austin Art Talk podcast. My name is Scott David Gordon, your host. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen, and I do hope you're enjoying the interviews I've been sharing. The focus of this podcast is on the interesting and creative people of Austin, Texas. As always, my intention is to have meaningful and in-depth conversations that I hope will be of value to you, the listener. They certainly are to me. I really love doing these interviews, and hopefully we can all figure out together how to better connect and support our local art communities and create opportunities and success for ourselves through conversations like these. You might have noticed, unlike many other podcasts, this one has no sponsors. For me, it's a passion project that I create and produce 100% on my own every week please consider helping to support me and my continued efforts by becoming a patron of mine. Go to austinarttalk.com and click on the support tab to learn more. And if you really love an episode and have a feeling it might benefit someone else, please share it with them. It might be exactly what they need to hear. Thanks to those who follow and interact with me on Instagram, at austinarttalk. That is by far my favorite social media platform. I post daily about local art events, and try to support and share the work of previous podcast guests, along with other interesting people, art, and podcasts that I find which you might enjoy. On to the rest of the show. Marjorie Moore's art career has continued to evolve through many decades of work. Her core themes and ideas have maintained some consistency, but the way she communicates with and through different types of drawing, painting, and combined media have changed with the different phases of her life. She has a love of materials, the tactile experience of making things by hand, collecting curiosities, and above all, nature. From puppets and soft sculpture, to large, dark, and theatrical paintings, to small, delicate, nature-based works, and many styles in between, she has never let herself get locked into or lost in any one style of art. After living in Austin for over two decades, she moved back to Maine to retire with her husband, where she continues to cultivate her interest in nature, and especially the ocean. What a nice adventure it was traveling by ferry out to Great Diamond Island off of Portland, Maine to visit Marjorie while I was on vacation. She was recommended to me by two previous podcast guests, Haley Gillespie and Madeline Irvin. Please enjoy this interview, which ends with Marjorie and myself exploring the beach where she sometimes finds inspiration for her artwork. Here is Marjorie. Okay, well, Marjorie, thanks for being on my podcast. Oh, it's a pleasure. So we are sitting on Great Diamond Island, right? Correct. We're on Great Diamond Island, and we're at Diamond Cove, which is part of the island. And we're just off of Portland, Maine. Mm-hmm. And I am uh, visiting Maine for the summer. So, And when I told people in Austin that I was going to be coming up here, they I had a, quite a few people tell me, like, oh, you should interview Marjorie, because you were an artist and you lived in Austin for decades, right? Correct. Um, I lived in Austin for over 20 years. Yeah. So there is an Austin connection. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> I'm trying to be I'm trying to stick to Austin people, but it's like I wanted to keep doing the podcast while I was up here, so this is uh, an obvious choice. And I just came on a ferry across uh Casco Bay to the island and just had a tour of your beautiful home and met some of your family and here we are. Yeah, you hit us at a big family time. Of yeah. course. Everybody likes to come to Maine in the summer. Yeah, <laughs> so, of course. Oh, yeah, there. it's crazy yeah. here. <laughs> yeah, it is. It is. Because it's, it's so very, beautiful. It is beautiful. It is a wonderful place to be in the summer. But Portland's getting a little crowded. Oh, is it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I can't imagine it's anything like Austin, though. No, 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 no. Comparatively, <laughs> I know people in Portland are complaining about development and crowds and traffic. And I just look at them and say, you have no idea. Yeah. Yeah. You have yeah. no idea what you're talking yeah, about. right. Well, I'm just wondering maybe if you could... Uh, start us out by, for someone that might not be familiar with you, maybe just give a little description of kind of your work or your approach to creating art. Yes, I I can do that. Um, I actually was born in Akron, Ohio. Mm -hmm. And um, my mom was a kind of Sunday painter artist herself. And so I was fortunate that as a child, I was taken to museums and actually Akron and Cleveland have very good museums. Oh, nice. Yeah, Cleveland in particular. So I always remember the first time I saw a Van Gogh painting at the Cleveland Museum of Art. I was I was kind of I was blown away as yeah. a child. And so even though my high school didn't have an art department, I I took art lessons at the Akron Art Institute, and then in high school we moved to Youngstown, Ohio, which is perhaps even more horrible than Akron, Ohio. <laughs> okay. More far out. Yeah. Oh, gosh, yeah. Though, of course, in those days it was uh, kind of a northeastern holocaust of pollution. And okay, yeah. Rubber mills. And very industrial. Very, very industrial. Okay. 
which is long gone now. But anyway, I so I had a mentor in high school who I took art lessons with her. She was wonderful. I think Scott actually saw one of her drawings downstairs in the house, which I still have. Oh, yeah. And nice. she was very influential and encouraged me to think seriously about becoming an artist, being an artist. And that's how I ended up at Syracuse University in the art school. You think she just saw that you had a proclivity for art? I think she did. I, uh, and I, one of the things that I was most amazing was that she actually traded that drawing that you see downstairs for a, a drawing that I did in a life drawing class. I thought, wow, she must, <laughs> <laughs> I must be okay. Yeah. She, she traded that drawing, and which because, I thought was so beautiful. And because your mom did art, mm-hmm. I imagine she wasn't trying to dissuade you from necessarily the idea of being an artist. She wasn't. My mom was great about it, although my, my father did suggest that I learn how to type. Okay. Because I might have to get a job. As so, a typist. Yeah, as a typist, <laughs> right, as a secretary. Yeah, right. <laughs> the good old days. The good old days, yeah. Yeah, Yeah. so um, I did have support from my family uh, to go to art school. Nice. Mm-hmm, which was great. Syracuse University was a, an interesting place to go to art school because it's a very large art department. Mm. So I had many different faculty and I learned a lot about materials, and I think that has stuck with me to this day. Mm. I learned a love of materials. So I took everything from painting to printmaking to life drawing, na- nature drawing, and sculptural work and uh, installation. Well, it wasn't called installation in those days, but we made stuff. Uh, and so that I think that is a very important piece of uh, what, even how I work today. So it was like a survey of every possible... It, it was. It really was. Yeah. I wonder if... Does that not how they do it today, I wonder? I think things have changed in art schools. I, one of the things I became concerned about at UT, certainly, was that they did away with the ceramics department. Mm. They uh, were not so interested in any kind of more craft-oriented work. Uh, things were becoming more digital and, and more theoretical, I think. Yeah. And not that there's anything wrong with that, but I think there is a very important piece of people learning to learn about tactile materials and how to make them, how to put them together. So, yeah. Yeah. I think that's something that I really crave myself as I spend more time in front of my computer doing digital mm-hmm. photography, creating a podcast digitally. It's like, I don't really want to make something with my hands. I want to build something right. and... I don't, I'll just speak for myself. I don't have a lot of experience building things, making things, fixing things like people 50, 100 years ago, probably everyone did that. Mm-hmm, you mm-hmm, know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, actually, that's one of the things we like about being on this island oh. is that one does have to become a bit more self-sufficient. You you can't necessarily get something fixed the day it breaks. Yeah. Or you have to figure out how things work, how systems work out here. And so it's you're much closer to dealing with those systems. Right. For example, if the power goes out, <laughs> yeah, you can't just call up the power company. I mean, you can, but it's going to take some time before anything will happen. Mm-hmm. So you have to have alternatives to yeah. cope, which I think I I think that's a, a fairly healthy thing to do. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. So you had this survey of all these different ways that you could create art in college, and mm-hmm. did you find yourself drawn to anything in particular, or how did that work? I, I did. I was very drawn to printmaking for a while, and then actually I started out in what was called illustration at that time. I thought I was maybe going to be a children's book illustrator, and I loved that, but then I realized, like, well, I really like I really like the more ethereal kinds of way paint moves around, and I didn't want to do just graphics. Um, Although I found it all interesting. So I kind of moved around. And the, in the end, I I did have a printmaking major, but I had essentially studied many different kinds of ways of making art. One of the people I loved at Syracuse, was his name was Ed Fricke. He taught a course. He taught several courses. He taught design courses, but he also taught a co- course called uh, Nature Drawing. Mm. And I, that's really where I learned my skills in the kind of drawing that I'm doing today. I took that course twice because his studio where we worked was, it was like a cabinet of wonder. So Mm. there were all kinds of stuffed birds and taxidermy, and he had bags and bags of fabrics and buttons and all these wonderful things. Oh, wow. Yeah. So I just, I love that class. Did you discover your kind of passion for those types of 
curiosities then, or did had you had that since you were a kid? I think that I had it as a child. I was a collector even as a child of ceramic horses, and I, I had a lot of fantasy worlds when I was growing up. <clears throat> I have a brother who is mentally ill, mm. and he's my only sibling. And so I think I tended to make private spaces for myself. So there was a, a lot of a lot of unhappiness around him mm. in those in those days, uh, because well, mental illness was was not treated in the same way yeah. as then as it is now. So it was it was difficult. So I think for me personally, I created these little little fantasy worlds with with my things. Yeah. And also my mom had a friend. This was in Youngstown, Ohio when I was in high school. She was quite eccentric and her her house as I recall was filled with things. Yeah. And carpets and things that made me very happy. Yeah. And next to right near her house there was a little shop. It was probably one of the earlier what we would call boutiques. Mhm. And that shop had handmade items in it and very kind of eclectic objects. And I loved that place. So I think that's where that started. And I can remember going to flea markets with my mom and I would want certain things and she would say, why do you want that piece of junk? Or, you know, what are you going to do with that? And I said, yeah. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what I'm going to do with it. I just want it. Yeah. Nice. <laughs> so... In Mr. Friggick's class, his studio was like, oh, this is, I could live here. This is great. So he was that kind of person, too. He was, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. And he was also gay. Of course, we didn't know that at the time. This is the early 60s. Yeah. I mean, we did know it, but you just didn't talk about it. Yeah. Yeah. So what came next? At Syracuse, that's where I met my husband, Stephen. Stephen was in the architecture school. He actually dated my roommate first, but... That didn't go well. It didn't go well. It didn't, go <laughs> it didn't well. work out. So, yeah, so we just hit it off. We, uh, I think we shared, a, we shared a lot of the same interests. He worked really hard as an architecture student. I was working hard as an art student. Um, but we partied a lot, and we ended up falling in love. We were married right after I graduated. So we've been together um, <laughs> 50, almost 55 years. Wow. And um, so then our life trajectory changed. We decided, of course, this is Vietnam War years. Yeah. And um, there was no way that Stephen was going to get drafted. That's for sure. He was going to be, he'd be a conscientious objector at the least. So we actually ended up going to the Peace Corps. It was one year after we were married. And we ended up in Iran for two years. And at that time, Iran, of course, was held in place by the Shah and the Shah of Iran had been put into power by the CIA. So it was a very interesting time there, hmm. a rather schizophrenic time. The good news for us was that we were stationed in an area called Kurdistan, which is very close to Iraq. So it was Kurdistan covers many nations, as we know, but it was a very interesting place to be because of the Kurds. Uh, very, they were more egalitarian than Persians. The women, most for the most part, were not dressed veiled, very colorful, terrific people. So we were there for two years. And it was an up and down kind of thing. I worked as a, I worked in two different schools. I worked in a Kurdish daycare center. And I also worked in a more upper class school for kids. And I taught English. And I also taught English to the governor's, the governor's children. Okay. So did you or Stephen, were you able to continue what you had studied or maybe what you were interested in, or was this a total side thing? It was a, it was a mixed bag. Um, Stephen worked in a government office and it was mainly regional planning. And for me, I, I tried to work with in arts and crafts with the kids besides teaching English. And uh, we had, we had some fun projects. We built some play things for them. Um, I got as many supplies as I could from the queen's office in Tehran. So we did what we could. We often felt though that, we're gaining more than the people we're trying to work with or help. Yeah, I'm sure it was a yeah, pretty amazing yeah, experience yeah, after yeah. growing up in Ohio. Right, right, yeah, <laughs> for sure. Of course, our families thought we were completely crazy Yeah, going off to the Middle East. Mm-hmm. But it's certainly it is a formative experience, too, in the sense that when you live outside your own country for that period of time, you get a much clearer vision 
of how the United States infiltrates other places mm. and the politics. It really hones your politics, I think. And you see how other people view. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So in terms of art making, for me personally there, I, I made a couple of books. I kind of went back to my original, oh, I'm a book illustrator. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah. So I, I did a book about Kurdish children and used fabrics and things. And I did a cookbook for the Peace Corps, an illustrated cookbook, which I had I had forgotten completely about until we went to a reunion of Iranian Peace Corps volunteers, which happened to be in Austin. This was about three years ago. And I met a woman, and she said, oh, my gosh, I still have that cookbook you did. And I said, what? <laughs> And she said, wow. yeah. I said, oh, my gosh, you have to send me a picture of it, which she did. And I said, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I guess I remember that. Nice. So eventually you came back to the U.S.? We did. <clears throat> and that was the height of the Vietnam War. Mm-hmm. So we came back to a country. This is after all the major assassinations, too. And we were essentially in reverse culture shock, honestly. It was a wild time. And we ended up living in, in Boston for a year. I was pregnant with our first child. And Stephen was working for an architect in in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And we would come up to Maine to camp a lot. We Mm. had to get out of the city. There were protests going on. It it seemed so crowded. It it was a very strange time. So we would come up to Maine, and we were hippies. Yeah. We didn't admit it at the time, but we really were. And so we ended up purchasing a farm in western Maine, a 125-acre farm. Oh, wow. It had a huge Victorian house on it and a big red barn, uh, and it was crazy. So we bought the place with our Peace Corps volunteer money that they saved for you. Yeah. That was a down payment. <laughs> and two of our other Peace Corps volunteer friends moved in with us. We were kind of like a little mini commune. Yeah. And friends from Boston would come up every weekend. We put them to work trying to put this place together. It was a mess. But we did. Um, it was an experience, once again, a survival experience. And and we lived there for seven years. We raised sheep, goats, pigs, ducks, mm-hmm. chickens, gardened. We were pretty much self-sufficient. And then mm-hmm. our, our second child was born up there. And, and then we, after seven years, I just said, you know what? I don't think I can do this anymore. This is a huge, huge amount of work. And we have two young children. And actually, our son, Ian, who you met downstairs, started school there. Yeah. And you were a little isolated. And I was, I became concerned. I said, you know what? I don't think this is the education we're really looking for for our children. So by that time, I I was very involved with crafts. Okay. I had started my little business. I was making one-of-a-kind puppets and then I was making what was called soft sculpture like painted and sewn figures and crazy things and we would uh, go to craft fairs Stephen was building furniture but he was also beginning to practice as an architect and he had set up a small practice uh, in western Maine but at the end of that the seven year itch as I call it we ended up moving to Brunswick Maine which was on the coast it's the home of Bowdoin College and much better school system, and it was civilization. Yeah. Yeah. So that worked out well for us, and Stephen's office grew. He had a partner. At one point, they had almost 30 people, <clears throat> excuse me, working for them. And I became very involved in the Portland art scene, and I began painting more. I kind of I left the puppet deal behind pretty much. And I was still making things, more object-type things, but I think I got tired of sitting behind the sewing machine. Yeah. <laughs> so... I'm wondering how else that seven years kind of formed who you are and what you're doing now. I think tremendously. I think what I didn't realize at the time, that how much the isolation affected mm. me. And after the move to Brunswick, <clears throat> there was a real, there was a pivotal change in, in, in my work. We were living, had been living in Brunswick, I think, for two years, and we took a trip north up to Greenville, Maine, and we did some cross-country skiing up there. And on that trip up, it became clear to me how important living in an isolated community can be and how much that landscape is frightening to me, quite honestly. Mm. So I think that's what those large paintings downstairs are about. A lot of it is fear and isolation. So it's so dark. And the forest is intense here. Yeah. And when it's cold, it can be quite bleak. And there's a lot of poverty in Maine. So on that drive up, 
there that it's just like, oh my gosh. And then I started doing this that work. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. There's some earlier ones that are are more drawing, and uh, they're about cold and deer kind of jumping over the road and hunting, and yeah. But it seems yeah, it's like very the, psychological. Yeah, the pieces downstairs have a lot more kind of a. There's a kind of an anthropomorphizing of the deer, mm-hmm. and then mm-hmm. also these kind of like cartoon characters. Right. Also. Right. Yeah, I think you're right. There's a combination. So it's it's about fear. It's these dark theatrical spaces, but it's definitely not just about landscape for sure. It's about uh, inner psychological space. And when those wind up Bambies enter the space, it's a kind of animation in a way mm-hmm. into a proscenium. And why so large? And then also Good with like question, these yeah. kind of elaborate, you know, rough wood tree frames mm-hmm. and antlers and. Mm-hmm. That's about kitsch. That's okay. about kind of touristy stuff. Actually, somebody gave me that one down there. That's um, the big. That looks like a big wood frame with knots in it. Yeah, yeah. It's actually made out of paper mache. Oh wow! Okay. Yeah, when I just stuck the wood knots in it and then painted it. Yeah, definitely kitschy. You know, so like things you would find in a tourist shop. Yeah. Or, yeah. So it's a combination of. My interest in popular culture, certainly, and vernacular kinds of things, and then this more psychological thing going on. So they're, they're complicated. They're stories. They are definitely narratives. So you had moved back to civilization, but you were still kind of processing mm-hmm. that whole experience. Yes, definitely. Yes, for sure. And what did you, I mean, kind of looking back on it now, like the kind of the span of doing that type of work, do you feel like you came to any conclusions or figured anything out about yourself or about that time or I'm not sure I figured it out yeah (laughs) (laughs) but I got through it okay uh yeah and so I was doing that very kind of dark psychological work right up until we left Brunswick Maine Hmm. to go to Texas I was at McDowell Colony in the late 80s and that was at the point where our son had gone off to college our daughter was in her last years of high school, I think I was having some empty nest things going on and just change in our our lives. And at the, and at the same time, we were beginning to contemplate a move. Yeah, We didn't know what we were going to do. Maybe move to Portland, Maine, or move elsewhere or something. So the paintings from at McDowell were, were really dark they were more about circuses circus interior circus tents and dumbo so i went from bambi to dumbo okay i must have watched the dumbo animated film 50 times it's an incredible film and of course it's all about fear dumbo has to fly he's mm-hmm. estranged from his mother you know <laughs> yeah it's all there things that we deal with in life that's right that's right plus the animation and that and the color and everything which just intrigued me deeply so there were all these paintings of Dumbo kind of flying through these dark dark tent spaces and figures on tight ropes hanging upside down and And so during this whole time when you're making this work are you doing it full time or you have kind of a day job or I'm doing it pretty much full time. Okay. I did uh some part-time teaching. I worked in retail shops a little bit, but no mainly I was I was doing this full time. In exhibiting or trying to sell work? or Yeah, I exhibited a lot in Maine. I exhibited in Portland. I was with a gallery in Boston for some time. Had several shows in Boston. Did pretty well. We did things were placed in museums at that time. So, yeah, I I had a good career here. But as I mentioned, both Stephen and I were contemplating some change. Mm -hmm. And at that same time... Stephen was offered what is a Loeb Fellowship at Harvard, which is for mid-career professionals. So that was an incredible gift. He spent a year at Harvard and uh, came back to his architecture office kind of part-time. But after he finished that, the writing was pretty much on the wall that he needed to teach. Hmm. He needed to get out of the practice and do something different. And that's how we ended up in Texas. Stephen went and did a, he did a PhD at Texas A&M and College Station. And before we made the decision, we, we went to Texas and kind of did the tour of Houston, Austin. And I said, yeah, I think I could do this. So while he was in College Station, we actually bought a little house in Houston. 
And I got a studio in one of the great old industrial buildings in Houston. Mm -hmm. And I was there for three years. It was fun. I'd never lived in a huge city before. I found it extremely interesting. The arts community in Houston is amazing. I met a lot of people, found a gallery to show at, um, became involved at Diverse Works and other nonprofits. So that was extremely interesting. But that, I think we talked about this in the studio, but that was the time where things really began to change in ter- of the kind of work I was doing. Mm. We moved to Texas, and, and then that first year, I had an Earthwatch fellowship as an artist to go to Venezuela. Earthwatch is a nonprofit organization that supports scientific research all over the world. And they offer people to go on these expeditions with different scientists, but people have to pay. And that's how they maintain their financial situation. Anyway, I was able to go for free. And I worked with a scientist from India. And we were in the plains of Venezuela. And we were working on Red Howler Monkey Project. And as I mentioned, it was that was kind of crazy, too. I mean, getting up early in the morning to collect monkey urine. But in between, I would find these um, beautiful skeletons of these monkeys on the forest floor. Mm. There's a lot of infanticide among red howlers, trying to create new families. In other words, young males will kill another one and try to infiltrate a family. So I, I would drag these skeletons back to where we were living, and I started drawing them. And this goes right back to Mr. Fricky and nature drawing. Yeah. And I realized, wow, I haven't done this kind of drawing for years, and I love doing this. And now it suddenly seemed like an okay thing to do. So before that, you were mainly painting. I was. Mm-hmm. Yeah. On a large scale, yeah. not mm-hmm. little Not little drawings. Not, not little drawings, no. And what was your role on this expedition. My my role was to be doing what everyone was doing, which was to help him with any with any oh, okay. research that he was doing, but at the end of it if any drawing I did or any kind of notations I took or anything that had to do with in a more artistic vein, um I would give to them. Okay. Which I did. So you were kind of there as an artist, but right. also just as a helping hand. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, there, there there was no actual criteria put on what I had to do. It was really up to me. And how long were you there? I was there for about three weeks. Okay. But this was like a kind of a, you're saying a pivotal mm-hmm. it was. shift for you and it, your work. It was. So when I got back to Houston, I was trying to figure out what I was going to do with this. I was still interested, of course, in the whole concept of anthropomorphism and popular culture and science as an interesting juxtaposition of how we view the natural world. So I started playing around with using monkey toys, like dressed up jocko monkeys and sock monkeys and that kind of thing, and trying to juxtapose it with something that had to do more with the natural world or science. So in some ways, it's not so different from the Dumbo and Bambi yeah. things. It's it's within that same realm, but I was trying. I was looking at it in a little different way, probably more in terms of methodology and and materials than changing my whole concept of how I view the world. It just was more about process and materials. I'm wondering when you're, you know, you come back to Houston and you're kind of in this position where you've rediscovered something that you enjoy doing or that you like, or maybe you can see kind of a direction with your work and you're potentially considering a shift in what you're doing and you're trying to figure out exactly what to do. Like, I just imagine a lot of artists find themselves in that position. I find myself in that position right now in a way. And I just wonder, how do you proceed? How do you, how do you not let your fear limit you? How do you be courageous and experimenting? You know, like, how do you, how do you think about that? That's difficult. I think for all artists, when you start seeing yourself in a situation where I don't know what I'm doing, <laughs> or, yeah. or, or why am I doing this? And I think for me, I would just I just would have to go in the studio. In other words, even if I just sit there and think about nothing, but just to be in a place where you are quiet enough, where you are not distracted. And I usually would just start drawing in my sketchbook. And that's why I always have a lot of things around me, because I can always pick something up and say, well, I'll just draw that. And if I get into that process and get into that headset, then usually things, it essentially frees up the brain 
and things start to flow in there, and you come up with ideas. I don't remember what artist said this, but I always like this. She said, there are no dumb ideas. And I, I always keep that in my head. Hmm. Maybe you're not going to like it when it's when you get to that point of like, is this done or isn't it or who cares? But you have to try it. You just you have to see. You have to see where it goes. That's That's why we're artists. We're allowed to do that. Nobody's telling us you can't do that. And if you listen to somebody who's, who, I mean, there might be people who are saying that, but they're wrong. Yeah. <laughs> you, you can do this. You can do whatever you want. That's why you're an artist. Yeah. I guess it's usually like you're saying, it's your judgment that would stop you mm-hmm. saying this is wrong. or Right. This is, <laughs> right. Or this is dumb. Yeah. This is really stupid. <laughs> you're judging it. Yeah. <laughs> uh-huh. We're Instead our own just, worst enemies. Yeah. Yeah. I always used to have a statement on my studio wall, too, that... Um, it's Patty Smith, and she always she says, "I'm an American artist, and I have no guilt." <laughs> <laughs> nice. That's a good one. Do you have any thoughts about the Austin art community versus not versus, but and the main art community? Like it just it seems like there's I mean there's definitely a long history of artists coming to Maine. It's a very interesting place for sure. There's a very long history here <clears throat> of artists living and working in Maine. Uh, yeah, and there's a very large artist community here. It's mainly concentrated on the coast, but certainly inland artists also. There is a limited amount of support for artists in Maine. It's, as I mentioned, Maine is a poor state and very dependent on summer population yeah. in all ways. But I would, I will say that good things are happening in Maine. There's a new Maine Center for Contemporary Art in Rockland, which used to be called Maine Coast Artists. That goes that has a very long history, but supports just Maine artists. So that's a, kind of an amazing thing. The gallery situation here is not fabulous, but again, de- mostly dependent on summer visitors. There's not a huge collecting community here, but the there. Portland Museum of Art is a very good institution. Bowdoin Museum has an excellent, excellent museum and very, very good people now in place doing extremely interesting shows. There's Colby College. There's Bates, which also does good shows. So there's plenty to do here. And of course, we're also very close to Boston. So it's easy to go see good art. But in compared to Austin, in some ways, I feel that there's more support for local artists here than in Austin, quite honestly. I think there is a lot going on in Austin, but it's mostly artist-generated. Local artists don't get a lot of support from the institutions. But in terms of people doing good art and support among artists among themselves, I think Austin is terrific that way. It's hard to keep a gallery going, though. It's very difficult. It's the same problem as here, really. There's not enough of a collecting community, Mm. whereas Houston and Dallas can do that. That's what always interested me after living in Houston and moving to Austin, that I I could never quite figure out what the dynamic was in in terms of who's buying art, where is it, and what's going on. Yeah. It was a little confusing. It's tough. It's tough to get people to come to Austin. It was always so interesting to me. I I showed with a gallery in Houston for quite some time, and it was always easy for me to go there and do what I needed to do. But to get somebody to actually come to Austin was more difficult. Hmm. I was wondering if you could talk about when you were were in Austin, the work that you did in, I guess it started in 2011, around the fires that were in Bastrop, the mm-hmm. drought fire and ash work. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, so that, that work actually started, the, the drought was so severe. And I started uh, drawing trees that were actually out at the ranch where our horses live. Uh, these huge live oaks that just, well, a couple of them were totally dead, and others just looked like they were on the brink. They were so beautiful in their own way. But so when I was working on those drawings, and those were uh, graphite on mylar, um, but while I was in the process of making those drawings, that's when those the fires happened. Hmm. And that was an experience I would never want to live through again. So, I mean, I think now with the California fires that are going on now, it, it is just so horrible. Yeah. Devastating. So fortunately, the fires did not reach the ranch where our horses live, but 
we had to evacuate all of them because the fires were so close. Mm. And trying to get 40 horses off a ranch and trying to figure out where they're going to go is extremely traumatic. Anyway, once the fires subsided, there were something like 1,100 homes lost out there. And one of them happened to belong to the parents of the woman who owns the ranch where our horses live. So I got very involved in the cleanup out at their place. It was just total devastation. The house had burned to the ground. Their cars were completely burned. But as we started sifting through the ash, there were these unbelievably tragic but beautiful objects of melted glass and pottery and all kinds of things, old toys. So I, I collected a, a lot of them. I took them back into Austin and I cleaned them. I just washed them and cleaned them as well as I could. Then I realized that, okay, this this is a very similar process of what I was doing when I was doing the dead bird pieces that were Mm. about the war. So I thought, okay, I I have to do something with this. And I I completed the set of drawings, but they were they I completed them in a very different way than I thought I was going to. So I I made these boxes for them, and I used some of the ash. I used the um, mulberry papers, and I was using inks on them to cover the boxes in. And I used some of the ash in that also. And then I placed the mylar drawings kind of in these boxes. Mm -hmm. And we did an exhibit, actually, at the little gallery, Black Lagoon. We did a beautiful exhibit there. So we showed the drawings, and we made shelves, and I placed a lot of the, the burnt objects underneath them. And then at the same time, I was uh, made a bunch of boxes to house these melted glass and just amazing things. So I felt that it was, it was restorative in the sense of trying to make something beautiful out of something that was so hor- so dead. Yeah. Just like the birds, same thing, out of a tragedy. And in a sense, they become reliquaries. Just There's such a history of that kind of thing, of Egyptian art and so many different things, of putting dead things in beautiful things. Yeah. So it's, it's a bit restorative, certainly. So you were doing that work in a way, just like responding to what was happening where you lived, mm-hmm. as opposed to like, I was thinking of your earlier work where you were kind of processing where you just were in a way. Right, yes. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, I hadn't thought of it quite like that, but that's true. Yeah, it's like in the time that it was happening. More in the moment. Mm -hmm. Right, right. So you're in Houston and you're kind of starting to experiment with something different. Mm -hmm. Where does that go? That goes on for a while. So I I did it. I was known as the monkey lady for a while. This okay. always happens to me. Like, right. you know, it's a cow lady, the deer, deer lady, the <laughs> Bambi lady, the Dumbo lady. And now I'm the monkey lady. Okay. <laughs> and I had so many toy monkeys. I mean, I could have, you know, I could paint this for a long time or draw these things for quite some time. That went on until, well, we would always come back to Maine in the summer, at least for a while. Okay. We had to get out of Texas. So we would come back and rent a cottage, either near Brunswick or somewhere. But then we found a place to rent on Little Diamond Island, which was one of the stops on the ferry. Mm-hmm. And we rented a house there for three summers. And that's where I began to really become very much more interested in the ocean and mm. than when I lived here before Texas. Yeah. I mean, I always loved the ocean. I loved going to the beach and all that, but I didn't really think about it as in terms of my work because I was still involved in the woods, see? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so I just started seeing things differently and I started drawing objects and things that I found here. And then that carried back into te- when I would go back to Texas. That work when I was showing with Haley at Art Science Gallery, a lot of the work that I showed with her was very much related to Maine, mm-hmm. which was interesting because I, I never got interested in the landscape in Texas as a an idea. Yeah, I was going to ask you how much yeah, I, Houston or Austin influenced you. Yeah, not so much in terms of the land. I mean, I think I loved the la- the Texas landscape. I loved going to West Texas in particular and Hill Country, but it never really moved me artistically hmm. and at the t- in Austin too I, I taught botanical drawing and botanical painting for a number of years hmm. at Laguna Gloria so 
since I was teaching it, I feel like I should be doing it also, but perhaps in a different way than I was. I wasn't doing botanical illustration as such, but I was definitely developing those skills as I was teaching. But still playing around with materials, you know, like I'm still doing with the mylar and the, you know, there's always something going on. Yeah, it's not just a straight it's drawing. It's not a straight drawing, right. So what you're describing really is kind of the path that you took to the work that you're doing now. Mm-hmm. And I'm just wondering if you could talk about that a little bit more. And then I think at some point we're going to go actually on a little outing to the uh, mm-hmm. to the beach and see if yeah. we can't find some objects. <laughs> But yeah, anyway, uh, just, um, yeah, maybe just talk about, just, yeah, maybe fill in the rest of that story and just kind of get us up to the present moment as far as your work goes. Right. So now that we're back in Maine year round, I'm not exactly sure where the work is going to go, honestly. I'm still finding things that intrigue me, um, but I found also that the winter was extremely interesting. Hmm. I'm not quite sure what I'm going to do with that sitting in this room and watching the light and the snow and the ice and also the ice on the water and so forth. It's just, it's just magnificent. So I, I've had these eyes, Oh my God, am I going to become a landscape painter? (laughs) (laughs) I, uh, I doubt it, but you know, one never knows. Um, probably what I'll do. Summer is always pretty crazy around here. We, we have lots of visitors, lots of families. So I don't even attempt to really work. I just let that let it flow, but as fall approaches, and I know I'll be going making more re- regular trips into my studio in Portland, and it'll be just like I was talking about. I'm going to be sitting there and thinking, okay, I'm not quite sure what I'm going to do. Hmm. I have a lot of work that can be utilized for exhibits. I have a big show coming up next summer at the Jewish Museum in Portland, but I think I'm probably going to use older work there. So I'm not going to concern myself with trying to put any kind of new body of work together. Mm -hmm. It's totally unnecessary. But then, of course, I'm an artist, so I can't sit here doing nothing. So we'll see. I don't know. I really don't know. I'll continue to play with the mylar and the drawing and so forth, but maybe it'll go a really different direction. We'll see. Maybe if you could just describe kind of the different variations of types of work that you're doing mm-hmm. now, like what it looks like and what it's composed of. Sure. So in this room, in the house, I do predominantly drawing. I have wonderful light in here. So I'm working from actual objects. So I'll have a pile of seaweed or a pile of shells or whatever it is. So I'm working directly from looking at those objects. Mm-hmm. They're not. I'm not working from photographs. I'm working from the object. And some of the drawings are fairly large, and some of them are small. But they're done primarily in graphite. And then I'm often now playing with taking little bits of the mylar that's been ink-stained that I use in larger pieces and doing very intricate little cutouts of, say, lichen shapes or pebble shapes or stones and creating a a more elaborate kind of drawing. Mm -hmm. So it's actually collage and drawing. And then the mylar seaweed pieces, I'm, those tend to be more what I call constructions. So they're done in layers. There'll be a, a layer of watercolor on the bottom layer, and then it gets built up with actual seaweeds sometimes that are, have been dipped in, in hot beeswax, so they're not going to disintegrate immediately. Yeah. <laughs> And uh, and then pieces of mylar. That, again, I do. I work the mylar in, in big sheets, so I'm just working with inks, and that's a very loose whatever happens kind of thing. Yeah. And then I'll use those uh, mylar pieces. I'll cut them up or shred them or different ways of using them and create these constructions. They're a kind of a combination of collage and watercolor and thread and things all stitched together too. So that goes back, see, to my, my old craft days. Yeah. I can't, I can't get away from it. <laughs> <laughs> Arts and crafts. Arts and crafts, yeah. <laughs> um, I'm wondering, so what would you say your current work is about? Because, you know, we talked about fear. We talked about, you know, Dumbo and deer and, um, you know, the anthropomorphism. 
What do you think now? What is this work about nature? I think there's definitely threads of relationships from the earlier work, but it certainly doesn't visually appear the same, that's for sure. Um, Because I'm dealing primarily with natural objects, and I'm not putting it in theatrical settings. I'm not doing that kind of more um, interior work. But I think, particularly when I am get into the mylar work, not so much about the graphite drawings, but in the mylar work, when I build up surfaces and they're layered, some of that does take on, I think, a kind of theatrical work. I also think that one of the things that I'm trying to do when I use the a grid system, for example, in the seaweed work, I think so much of what I see on the beach and uh, in my walks seems somewhat chaotic. In other oh, words, yeah. there's, there's a lot of chaos out there. Nothing is, is ordered in the sense that, in a kind of uh, Cartesian sense, for sure. Yeah. So I think that that's what the gridding is about. It's trying to create some some smaller world where I can look at some of this chaos and put it into some kind of order for myself. So those pieces, in a sense, because of their boxed and they're put in these... Um, ways of seeing them it is, it is kind of theatrical like they're like little say joseph cornell boxes where there's a story and a narrative going on in mm-hmm. there even though the they're very different than the deer jumping through the woods and cabins running around being scary and spooky and all that but yeah yeah but so that that's the thread that i see and in the future you had mentioned the winter and right i definitely am interested in the light of winter and what happens to the ocean and everything around it, for that matter. But it, a lot of it, I think, has to do with patterning and perhaps trying to order some of that chaos of ice breakups and the coldness. And who knows? I don't know. We'll see where it goes. It's a big question mark right yeah. now. That's for sure. But that's the exciting part. <laughs> yeah. You, you can, never know. Like you said, you can do whatever you want. You're that's an artist, right. right? That's right. Right. So we're going to do something that I haven't done with anyone else that I've interviewed. We're actually going to do a second part of the interview actually outside, and we'll, we're going to see how it goes. We're going okay. to go uh, exploring the, uh, as you've said on your website, the the ocean shore, which is the boundary between worlds, mm-hmm. which I really love that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's a place that captures what is in constant flux between the land and the in the depths of the water. Exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah. So yeah, let's do that and see how it okay. goes. Okay. Great. Well, thanks, yeah. Marjorie. Thank you. Okay. Here we are on the beach. Okay. <laughs> what were you just saying about the tide? So the tide's coming up. So when the tide is out. If you look out here, we can get 10-foot, 11-foot tides out here. Yeah, that's what they were saying on the ferry. Like every six hours, it can fluctuate 10 feet. It it can, yeah, yeah. So right now, we're not going to see a lot of stuff right down here. But if you look over here to the left, that's a rockweed. That's a kind of seaweed. Okay. And that's very common on the main coast. And that is harvested in many places for use as fertilizer, uh, additives to feed, and all kinds of things. So it's, it's full in, oh, wow. full of nutrition. Yeah. So one of my favorite things to look for down here is the little tiny yellow snail shells. Yeah. Because they feed on the rockweed. Oh, okay. Yeah. So usually ah. you'll f- we'll find them. You'll see a lot of different kind of snail shells down here. But the little yellow ones are are my favorite. Yeah, you have many jars. <laughs> yes, of those. I have many, many of them. <laughs> <laughs> and you can see too, like things get washed up on the beach that probably don't really want on the beach. Oh wow! Yeah, yeah. it's a huge metal right yeah. rope thing here. Yeah, yep. And the bluish shells are mussel shells. And we're not seeing as many mussels as we have in the past because there's been an infiltration of green crab. Okay. Which are invasive, and they're eating a lot of the mussel population. So most, almost all mussels that you eat now are farmed. 
and there's a big farming of uh, mussels on Bangs Island, which is out here in Casco Bay. Very interesting. It's really, you know, when I started doing a little bit of research about mm-hmm. seaweed yep. and realized that it was actually algae. It is marine right? algae. That's correct. Marine algae. And then, yes. I, and then I discovered that the the word algae comes is a Latin word from the 16th century that means seaweed. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yes. It's it's so interesting because there's a lot of controversy, actually, about seaweed harvesting in Maine. And so there are all these old rules about who's allowed to do what between the high and low tide lines. So, for example, clamming. You have to have a license to clam uh, in, in all areas, actually. And uh, some people don't like the idea of seaweed harvesting because they think it's too noisy and so forth, or or that it's ruining the habitat, which is also ridiculous because it's when they harvest the seaweed, they essentially just take the top layer off. It's kind of like mowing the grass, so it doesn't destroy the the ecology at all. And it's very nutritious, and it has, it's people have been harvesting seaweed for centuries uh, all over the world. I'm sure for hundreds of thousands of years. Yeah, it's for been sure. Used. Yeah, yeah. So when you come out here on a mm-hmm. daily basis, or yeah, I mean, I usually I can come to this beach or I go to other beaches. There's a couple of beaches um, up on the east side of the island that are fairly protected, and we call them flat rock beach. There's all these flat skipping stones okay. out of black rock. Yeah, interesting. Uh, so this one, this is a great spot for kayakers and people, too. And so it's a great way to get into the water. And the water is so warm this year. It's kind of frightening, actually, yeah, how it is, warm it, it is. It is very warm. Yeah. So. so you come down here and you're looking for things that mm-hmm. might inspire yep. a drawing or... Exactly. Yeah. Like even, like this little... The seaweed turns all these amazing colors when it's dried. So even that, just that little can see how the sand kind of sticks to it and these little nodules of the sea of the rockweed it it changes form in really interesting ways so if you look at it this pile up here this is the tide pushes it up but it gets very dried up and is black and weird and full of sand fleas oh nice <laughs> yeah yeah but there's also parts I'm seeing that are still pretty bright, That's brightly right. colored. Yeah, the bright yellow in here. Mm-hmm. Where are you finding the purple? Uh, the purple, the sea mosses I'm finding on the beaches that are more rocky. Okay. It, it tends to get washed up, and sometimes I'll find really large pieces of kelp after a storm oh. in particular. So I th- the ones that were hanging in the studio, yeah. the long ones, those tend to get washed up from deeper waters, and then come in on the tide kelp how yeah. is kelp different than seaweed kelp is uh kelp is a seaweed okay it, it is, is a it's a marine algae also uh it's just the formation of it they're they're thick and wide and they grow in big strips okay yeah and you said that a lot of things do wash up on these beaches oh, that yeah. were discarded by the military when they had this island. yes lots of pottery shards and actually no, that's shell, but sometimes you'll see them down here too. Oh, and this is this is a piece of coal. Oh, really? Yeah. Uh huh. Mm. So they used to burn coal here, in the, when when the military was here, and so yeah, that's a piece of coal. Put it in your stocking. Yeah. Right. No, I've been good. <laughs> and this is a. There's a lot of shale here, like. Um, the, the black shale, it's, it just falls apart and breaks up like mm-hmm. that, and that's what creates a, the darker piece of, pieces of the beach. Isn't that the predominant rock that kind of lines all all these islands? Is this kind of a shale? There is a shale, for sure. There, uh, you know, like all along here, that's what that is, definitely. Yeah. Glass, there's a piece of, piece of glass. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. fairly new, needs to go back in the water. Sharp yeah, edges. Needs to, yeah. 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 Ground down a little bit yeah, more. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And what I find is that when you first come to a beach like this, it looks like there's nothing here. But then, as you just sometimes, I just sit because oh. then I can 
I start to see things. Like, see, here's a little, here's a little yellow snail. Oh, yeah. See that? And there's a surrounded by a bunch of other ones. Yes, yes, bigger ones. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So there's several here, different kinds of yellow. See, there we have three. Oh yeah, three kinds of yellow. <laughs> and you're really having to look. I mean, yeah, it's, you do. It's an interesting you do. exercise. You do. Yeah. Must be it's all about observation. Meditative. It is very, very meditative. Now see these. See how many there are in here. Yeah, there's, there's like one, hundreds of these. Yeah. Oh, okay. I see, I see the yellow ones. The yellow yeah. ones. Yeah. Here's several. So we're looking out into this small cove here, and there's in the distance there's like a little. That's I guess that's the dock where I came in on, and that there's is, boats moored there. And right. Oh, here we go. See that? Oh, beautiful. See that? Yep. Pottery. Oh wow. I love I love finding stuff like this. Oh, thank you, <laughs> thank you. I didn't find it, but that was gifted to me. There well, you I'm go. just wondering while we're just to kind of wrap this up. I'm just mm-hmm. wondering as we're standing here in this really beautiful setting on this island where you're living now. I mean, do you have any thoughts generally about just the life of an artist, having chosen to be an artist your whole life? I think uh, this is a good place for me at my age. I, I like the isolation. I like the fact that I'm removed from the mainland. I think it would be way more difficult if I was a mid-career even or a young artist. I think that then you need more of the energy mm-hmm. of the larger arts community in a more urban setting. I always took a lot of energy from when I was living in Brunswick, certainly. Uh, I was in Portland probably more than I was in Brunswick because that's where all the energy was and going to openings and hanging out and having coffee with other artists, that kind of thing. I don't do that so much anymore. Um, Not that I don't do it at all, but I just don't feel the need to do that as much as I did. So, yeah, I think this is a great place at this point in my life. Yeah. Because as we talked about earlier, when I was isolated on the farm (laughs) in western Maine, that was an extremely interesting and informative time, but I think it also made me a little crazy. Yeah. Crazy, crazier than I actually need to be. Isolation can do that to you. Do you have any advice that you tend to give to other artists or that you've mentored? Or? Since I taught so much, oh, yeah. my feeling about work, I always try to convey to my students. And I said, you have to work. You just have to work. And if the muse isn't there, so what? Just do it. And uh, I think actually raising a family gave me the ability to focus no matter what. I only had so much time in a day where I could work, and I couldn't sit around and wait for the right moment. So I think creating a regular studio habit is incredibly important because you have to work. Otherwise, you don't get anywhere. It's and there a, are no dumb ideas. There are right? no dumb ideas, precisely. Yeah. And the other thing I would say, too, is enjoy what you're doing. Take take pride in it. Enjoy it. Uh, because that's why you're an artist. Yeah. Yeah. It's the joy of making art. Well, thanks, Marjorie, for your time and, and for inviting you me out to the so island. You are so welcome. Yes. It was a pleasure. We're going to go have lunch. and We are. Yeah. I really appreciate it. You bet. Thanks. Yeah. Thanks for listening. If you're enjoying the podcast, be sure to share it with your friends and colleagues and consider giving it a review on iTunes. That could help others find it and motivate them to give it a try. At austinarttalk.com, you can visit each episode's webpage to find links related to the relevant and interesting people, places, and things mentioned by each guest. And thanks to those who have reached out with encouragement and positive feedback. I really appreciate it. All the best to you and take care. Take care.